Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be continuing our study of Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 4 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. are continuing our study of Romans chapter 8, so you can turn there in your Bibles. We're on verse 2, so we're right near the beginning of that chapter. In our previous study, we looked at the great news in verse 1, and Paul will expand on that in the verses following it. So let's read verses 1 through 4 and see what he has to say. We're going to be reading Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Quote, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." As I said, in our last study, we looked at in detail verse 1, which delivers this greatly important statement that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today we'll continue on to verse 2, where Paul gives the reason that there is no condemnation, and that is, quote, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death, unquote. Here, Paul is using the word law in somewhat of a loose way as he forms a parallel statement in order to, in a poetic way, compare the way things were before to how things are now. Before, we were under what Paul terms here, the law of sin and death. But now, in Christ, we're under the law of the spirit of life. And so, Paul is essentially comparing the old covenant that the children of Israel lived under to the new covenant that those who are in Christ Jesus live under. And he gives each of these things a poetic, descriptive name. The law of sin and death for the Old Covenant, and the law of the Spirit of life for the New Covenant. In using these, what I would call poetic statements, Paul is packing a lot of information into a fairly small amount of real estate. So it takes a bit of unpacking and analysis and meditation to squeeze out all of the meaning that Paul is packing into this verse. By writing this in a somewhat artistic manner, Paul gives us kind of a reason to stop our reading and to meditate on exactly what he means by the statements that he is using. We say, hmm, what does Paul mean by the law of the spirit of life? And in what ways was the Mosaic law a law of sin and death? Was it really? Do do I really agree with that? Because it's written in an artistic way, it gives us a reason to explore what it means and, and maybe to talk about it with others, and to come to Bible studies with the purpose of learning more about it. And so it keeps me in business, really. And when we interpret the Bible, 
When we try to figure out exactly what it all means, we have to take these things into account. We have to understand that there is poetry in the Bible, and there is artistry in the Bible, and literary devices are used, and rhetorical devices are used. In this case, we have, among other things, the literary device of parallelism, which is really the primary literary device used in the uh, Bible as a whole. Parallelism is when the writer gives us two or more parallel statements set against each other with the purpose of comparing them for their similarities or at times contrasting them for their differences. And this was a common literary device used in the Hebrew language and culture. And it's used all over the place in the Old Testament. And so Paul and the other New Testament writers also picked this up and they used parallelism in their writing as well because they're part of the literary culture that they grew up in. So Paul does that here by describing the law and the gospel in a parallel way with the purpose of comparing them. So here's the parallelism, the law of the spirit of life and then the law of sin and death. And our ears can't help but pick that up. And if we're paying attention, we say, wow, that's beautifully written. It sounds really cool. Uh, because of this, we, we enjoy reading the Bible more. So Paul here is essentially comparing the old and the new covenants with the new covenant of God's grace being called the law of the spirit of life and the old covenant under the law being termed the law of sin and death, which sounds rather harsh but Paul gives his reasons for calling it that in the next verse. Let's see what he says in verse three. Quote, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, unquote. So it's termed here the law of sin and death, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because of our shortcomings in not being able to fulfill the law. So the law was powerless because it was weakened by, uh, by the flesh, by our sinful nature. Or in other words, because of the weakness of our sinful nature and being able to carry out the law, the inevitable result of being under the law was always for us sin and death. But God turns all of that around. Verse 3 is really quite precious in that it expresses that God himself intervened in order to make up for our powerlessness and our weaknesses. What the law was not able to do, or to put it another way, what we were not able to do under the law because of our weaknesses, God did. Those are precious words. God did. God did it. God himself intervened to change our whole destiny. Because of our weaknesses, we were on our way to destruction and condemnation. But God stepped in and in his love took control of the situation. So then, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. This is so significant for each and every one of us, for Christians and non-Christians, for Jews and non-Jews, for every single person who has ever walked the earth. You see, here's the deal. Before Christ, we were all under the law. We tend to think that the phrase under the law only applies to the Jews. And certainly, they are the primary example of those living under the law because as a model for all of us, they were explicitly given the law of God through Moses. And the whole history of the children of Israel deals with how they fared living under that law. But before the time of Christ, 
Everyone lived under the law, even non-Jews, even those who did not have a law that was written down and handed to them. Adam certainly was under the law. Adam was given one law, and given that one law directly from the mouth of God. Don't eat the fruit from that one tree over there. Of course, Adam failed at that. And then, even after the time of Adam, up to the time of Moses, during times when there was no written law, yet even then all of humanity was under the law. This is implied many times in the Old Testament. Here's one passage from the time of Noah. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Quote, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time." The implication here is that the people at the time of Noah were under some sort of law. There was some sort of law that defined wickedness and that defined evil at that time for humans. I say for humans because God certainly treated humans different from other species that roamed the earth. You don't see any passages in the Bible about God, say, chastising tigers for killing other tigers, or chastising lions for killing other lions, or or chastising beetles for killing other beetles. That's because animals have no such law. They live totally by instinct, and if their instinct tells them to kill, well, they will kill. They weren't created in the image of God. They weren't given the reasoning capabilities that we have and the moral knowledge that we have. And so they aren't held accountable when they steal or or murder or commit adultery or anything else. But humans are held accountable. But to what law? Paul talks about the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Here's what he says, quote, To be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come." These verses are a bit hard to parse. What Paul is saying is that even before the Mosaic law, sin was in the world. A proof of this is that death reigned from the time of Adam to, to the time of Moses, even before the Mosaic Law. But, it, but again, what law are we talking about? Well, it's something that the scholars call the natural law. It's our God-given sense of right and wrong as enforced by the conscience. Paul speaks of this in chapter 2 of Romans. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Quote, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them." It's a law that every human being on earth has lived under. It's our natural God-given sense that we are put here on earth to please our Creator. And so that's what enforces this law upon us as aided by the conscience. When any human being, whether they be Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or atheist, whenever any human being sins against his or her conscience, they feel a fear related to displeasing their Creator. 
This is the law under which every human being lives, even if that law is not written down. Given this, absolutely every human being from the time of birth is under what Paul terms the law of sin and death. So we are all saddled from birth with this problem. How can I please my creator? Because what we find as we make our way through life, what we find is what Paul discovered, that the, quote, the law is made powerless because it's weakened by our sinful nature or our flesh as it's sometimes translated. So for every human being, whatever law they live under, whether it be the Mosaic law or the natural law, that law becomes a law of sin and death, as Paul terms it. Because no matter what law we live under, we fail. Our sinful nature transforms every standard of law into a law of sin and death. So it's an age-old problem, a universal problem, felt by everyone. How can I please my Creator? I know that I've fallen short of that. How can I make amends? And it's a problem that God himself, by his abounding grace, has solved himself. That's what Paul says in verse 3 back here in Romans chapter 8. Let's read it again. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. Quote, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. Unquote. As I said before, those two words are extremely precious words. Those words, God did, right there in verse 3. God himself intervened to change our whole destiny. How? By sending his own son. And note this, God could have sent some messenger or some angel, but instead he sent down his own son, as Paul says here. And in fact, this is the strongest demonstration of God's love for us that we'll ever know, as Paul had pointed out back in Romans chapter 5. Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 8, quote, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, unquote. So I think it's important that we understand God the Father's role in all this. God the Father sends his own son to take care of the sin problem. That's basically what that phrase on account of sin means back, back here in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 3. In fact, let's look at that. There are two difficult phrases in verse 3. There, there's the phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, uh, as used to describe Jesus. And then there's the phrase, on account of sin, which is um, how Paul describes the reason for, for Jesus coming. Um, let's look at the first one first. What does it mean that Christ came to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh? This phrase is necessarily a difficult phrase to talk about and interpret because none of us knows exactly what it's like to go from being God, as Jesus was and is, and to come down here on earth and, and to live as a man. How does that all work? We don't know. We do know that it was an extreme act of humility, and an example of humility that all of us should take an example from. Paul teaches us this in the book of Philippians. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Quote, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness." Unquote. The word likeness uh, back there in Philippians is the same word that's used in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, when Paul says Christ came in the likeness of sinful man. So those two phrases, uh, being made in human likeness in, the, in Philippians, and then the phrase in the likeness of sinful man, those, those are synonyms to each other. What the word likeness emphasizes, I think, is that though Jesus' is deity is God, yet he appeared on earth as a man, in the likeness of a man, even in the likeness of sinful man. In other words, he looked, he acted, he sounded like a man, though in his nature he was still deity. In other words, his becoming a man for a time did not cause him to lose his deity. And yet on earth, he was a man. He felt the same things that we do as people, pain, sickness, sorrow, joy. And he was tempted in sin, just as we are. We learn that from the book of Hebrews in a very significant passage, explaining the reason that Jesus had come to earth as a human. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Quote, since the children, that's the children of Israel, since the children of Israel have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels Christ helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Unquote. The humanity of Christ is closely related to his ability to save us through his death. It's closely related to his ability to make atonement for our sins. In the whole scheme of things, it was important that Christ actually face the temptations and even suffer under the same temptations that we face. Otherwise, his coming to earth would have just been play acting. His sinlessness would not have meant anything. Christ's sinlessness means something because he actually was tempted to sin just as it says in verse 18 of, of Hebrews chapter 2. Because Christ himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes this also a bit later on um, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Let's read that quote. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin." Unquote. That's a very important verse. Christ was tempted in every way, just as we are. And this fact makes Christ's sacrifice of atonement more effective. Again, Christ's sinlessness would not have meant anything if he actually wasn't tempted to sin. Christ was tempted, it was possible for him to fall into sin, and yet he did not sin. So given this, when he offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins, it really meant something. He was tempted, he did not sin, 
And so, absolutely, Christ had no sins of his own to atone for. So given that, his death could atone for all of our sins. It was extremely important for us and for our salvation that Christ came to earth as a man, or as Paul puts it back here in Romans, came to earth in the likeness of sinful man. And it was important for us that he be tempted just as we are, and yet not sin. And this leads us to the other difficult phrase in these verses, uh, verses three and four of Romans eight, which in the translation that I have here um, and, and that I've read, says, on account of sin, uh, full disclosure here, I've changed the NIV translation in verse 3 to read closer to what the original Greek says. But I didn't just make it up myself. I actually pulled the phrase from the New King James uh, Version translation. The NIV renders the phrase to be a sin offering, but the original Greek doesn't say anything about an offering. There's no word for offering in the original Greek in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. The original Greek is more general and a bit vague, to tell the truth. In fact, the original Greek is literally just two words, which could be rendered for sin or about sin. Here's a summary of how various translations render the phrase. Uh, the NIV, let's read that again. God did by sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Uh, New King James Version. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. The ESV version says, and for sin. The NET version says, and concerning sin. The New Revised Standard Version says, and to deal with sin. So the various translations confirm what I told you, and that is that the word offering is nowhere in the text except in the NIV. And, and for this reason, I, I switched it up a bit and brought the phrase from the New King James Version. Because, as I said, in the original Greek, it's just these two words, a preposition, which could be translated for or about or concerning, and then the word sin. So we see the different renderings that I just read uh, by the different translations, all of which are more accurate than the NIV we have on account of sin and for sin and concerning sin and to deal with sin. So given all that, I think we can figure out what Paul is saying here. In essence, Paul's saying that the primary reason that Jesus came to earth was because of sin. His mission was to deal with the sin problem in general. That's why he came to earth. And yes, as the NIV points out, Part of that was to become a sin offering, but, but that's only part of it. There are other ways that Christ dealt with sin here on earth. For instance, through his teaching, he was dealing with sin. He was letting us know the full extent of the righteousness that God expects when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Also, through his actions, he was dealing with sin. He provided an example for us of how to live a sinless life and how to live a life of service to God. In this way, he was dealing with the sin problem by example. And then, of course, through his sacrifice, he dealt with the sin problem by atoning for our sins so that we can be forgiven for them. 
So the point of all this, I think, that Paul is making is that the mission of Christ in his incarnation was to deal with, in a myriad of ways, the problem of sin through teaching, through example, through his sacrifice. The world has this problem, and the problem is with sin. And so Jesus was sent to deal with that problem in various ways. Next, in verse 3, leading into verse 4, Paul continues, quote, And so Christ condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, unquote. This phrase that Christ condemned sin in the flesh, that phrase is, is also a bit of a difficult one and worthy of meditation. Because, at least to me, it wasn't immediately clear what it means exactly. In researching it, I found that there were two main interpretations of it. One interpretation concerns our justification, and the other interpretation concerns our sanctification. So the first interpretation of of that phrase, condemned sin in the flesh, concerning our justification, is that through the passion of Christ, through the suffering that he went through as he paid for our sins, through that, we can understand how truly horrible sin is. And so in this way, sin is condemned. We see the horridness of sin through Christ's suffering. And this, to me, seems to be a very valid interpretation of this phrase. Another way that this phrase, condemned sin in the flesh, is interpreted concerns our sanctification. And that is that Christ, by living a sinless life here on earth as a man, shows us, by comparison, how bad the sin is in our lives. So in this way, Christ condemned sin in the flesh. Whichever way we take this phrase, Paul goes on to give us the purpose for this condemning of sin. And that is, quote, in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fully met in us, unquote. And again, on this phrase, there are a couple of interpretations. And, and once again, there's an interpretation which concerns justification and one that concerns sanctification. Concerning our justification, this phrase in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fully met in us, this phrase can mean that through Christ's suffering and death for our sins, then the righteous requirements of the law are met met in us because we appropriate Christ's atonement for our sins by faith. And so the requirement of the law, which is punishment for sin, well, that's met in us because Christ paid the price for our sins. The second interpretation, which concerns sanctification, is that Christ lived a sinless life and then gave us the Holy Spirit in order that we too may be sanctified with a goal of living a fully righteous life. And this interpretation leads well into the next phrase, which is that we don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let's take a step back for a second, just so we don't lose the forest for the trees here. We've seen that these last few phrases each have an interpretation and application to both justification and sanctification. Justification meaning the forgiveness of sins that we obtain through Christ and the salvation from the punishment that we receive through Christ. Sanctification 
meaning the process of living a more Christ-like life through following his example and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And given these two ways of looking at these few last verses and phrases, I think we can learn something. And that is, I think we can have a wider understanding of why Christ came to earth to live as a man by understanding that there's a justification part of it and a sanctification part of it. We tend to focus, I think, on the justification part of why Christ came to earth. We say, oh, Christ came to earth to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And that's true, of course, but that's only half the picture. Christ also came to earth to deal with sin with respect to our sanctification. He came to earth as a man to show us what a sinless life looks like. He came to earth to personally give us, in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places, to personally give us instructions about how to live a pure and sanctified life. And then also he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to guide us on the road of sanctification, on this road that we're all on in trying to be more Christ-like. So I think it's no surprise that we can view many phrases in this passage and in many other passages in the New Testament through both of these lenses, through the justification lens and the sanctification lens. And I think that each view is valid. One's not right and, and, and the other's not wrong. They, they both have application to our lives. We can learn things from both of them. And this really is the depth of the Bible. The fact that we can analyze and find a wide array of application depending on where we are at in our lives. And that's why we can spend our whole life studying this book and still finding new and surprising things because there's remarkable depth here. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all of your endeavors. Amen.